President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go He will fall in fire! Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting, and personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. On today's follow-up episode, we hear the complete interview of Dr. Dick Green and John Malone as part of the Docs' 20th anniversary, Larry Setkoviak, former president and CEO of the Cable Center, sat down with Dr. Dick Green, former CEO of Cable Labs, and John Malone, former chairman and CEO of TCI, and current chairman of Liberty Media, Liberty Global, and Liberty Interactive. Malone led the industry's establishment of Cable Labs in order to effectively scale the digital technology and equipment that was necessary for cable companies to provide next-generation broadband services. Green led and stewarded the organization and its many innovations from its inception in 1988 until his retirement in 2008. Here they discussed their recollections of how Doxus evolved and how all the essential elements came together to enable the cable industry to become the leading provider of commercial high-speed internet service. Hi, I'm Larry Sadkoviak, and we're at Liberty Global today to talk to Dr. Dick Green and Dr. John Malone about the developments in the cable industry over the last 20 years in the digital area to include the cable modem and DOCSIS. Well, Dick, John, let, you know, thanks mm-hmm. for being here. Uh, you know, and uh, let's get straight into it. The, uh, let's go back to about early 1990s to mm-hmm. mid, maybe 1990s. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the state of the industry. Obviously, there were a lot of new technologies that were coming on board. You were at TCI at the time. Um, and uh, looking at things like uh, you know, uh, two-way types of interactive services, uh, telephony, mm-hmm. uh, and whatnot. And then right on top of it, you had the 1992 Cable Act uh, that put a damper on things. And so let's talk just for a minute about um, how do you make decisions about various types of technologies when obviously there's a lot of possibilities going on in the early 90s. How do you make those, um, those capital decisions? How do you, you know, where do you take the company? Well, it's interesting you start with the Cable Act. Uh, we had announced a merger with Bell Atlantic. And in fact, we thought TCI was acquiring Bell Atlantic, of course, the precursor of Verizon. Uh, and and at that point, it was very clear that communications, in addition to the delivery of video, was going to be the future of the industry as we saw it. Mm-hmm. The Cable Act effectively blocked our, our deal with Verizon. But uh, clearly, we were on the page of adapting digital technologies, which were starting to explode, to bringing the cable industry into the digital age in both video delivery, but also in two-way communications. Was the uh, cable industry pretty much behind an overall effort? I mean, were you all thinking on the same page in those days? Well, the industry had rallied to join cable labs. We had a very broad buy-in when we created cable labs. And so it was a question of people recognizing we needed collectivity, common standards, we need scale. Mm -hmm. And uh, we recruited Dick, of course, 
And that was fortunately. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when did uh, Cable Labs come about? What was the official? Eighty nine. Well, I was incorporated in eighty eight, and I joined it in eighty eight. And we really started work in eighty nine. And this, moved the, to Boulder. Yeah. The, this was the thesis that we needed to escape from proprietary standards that split the industry into many uh, pieces and try and develop standards that the vendors could then supply mm -hmm. against uh, what was then essentially a domestic industry, including Canada, right? So our Canadian friends were very quick to support uh, Cable Labs and join it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I would say that there was quite broad buy-in to the need to, to uh, develop standards and, and, uh, and invent. Let's, mm -hmm. let's call it event things we needed to allow the industry to move into this digital age. As my memory was, one of the first projects was digital compression. Mm -hmm. And we kind of took on mm -hmm. the job of developing a standard for digital compression of video signals. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was MPEG-2. Right. Uh, and so that was really the first sort of tangible mm -hmm. project that that you could see and uh, and the use of digital compression in transporting video signals, I believe PrimeStar, which was our yes, satellite, right, business, yes, exactly. was actually the first application of it. Mm -hmm. And it was very relevant there because PrimeStar was very channel limited, bandwidth mm -hmm, limited, mm -hmm. as since it was a consortium of cable guys, the federal government would not allow us to go to high power satellites. And so we had to use technology to try and stay in the game. Mm -hmm. And that became our first application. It became pretty obvious that that technology could also be used on uh, on terrestrial transport, mm -hmm. right? Right. And so my guess is we started thinking about a digital set-top box that would be able to uh, take uh, these compressed signals and deliver them in analog format to a TV set. And that became, at least from my perspective, a big focus. Mm -hmm. it, it became this interface uh, between our systems and what were then analog TVs. And I think it was about then we had the big fight about HD standards. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, the <laughs> Japanese had decided they were going to take over the world with with an analog HD standard. And we dug in pretty hard. I know we did at TCI and we went to the FCC and we fought it and we were ultimately successful in blocking uh, an analog high def mm -hmm. standard. Mm -hmm. um, John C. Say John C. I think was part of that. John C. He, was, he was critical. He was, yeah. the, he was the leader. He wrote a white paper. Mm -hmm. It was poo-pooed by some of the geniuses at MIT. <laughs> But in the end, we prevailed. And I, I really, I always remember testifying at the FCC and suggesting that it was going to take uh, a gun in every household to get people to buy this obsolete Japanese <laughs> system. And, uh, and, and it was a surrender and that the digital world was coming and going to be very strong in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the FCC should be looking forward and looking at at the ability to have a U.S. digital standard. In the end, we prevailed, right? Right. So everything was going to go digital, yep. and we needed a digital uh, 
standard for the industry and we needed volume in order to drive down uh, the capital cost. Um, and so we tried to engage Cable Labs in that. We took the Cable Labs Executive Committee, if I remember, uh, on a tour of Silicon Valley and we I visited did. Apple and we pleaded with Apple to get involved because we, we recognized their interface skills. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Steve wasn't there yet. <laughs> and no. uh, John Scully was. That's, but we, uh, uh, that's right, John we really We really didn't get any traction. In those days, the industry probably could have bought Apple. You probably should have bought it, <laughs> but we, you know, but we didn't. We weren't that. But we did. We did create our own microelectronics uh, skunk works. Remember that micro unity. Micro unity. We mm -hmm. dumped a lot of money into trying to develop a digital uh, processor that could handle both memory and processing speeds and would be optimized around the, uh, the functionality we were looking for. Mm -hmm. Now Qualcomm kind of beat us to it, I guess. <laughs> they did a better job of it, whatever, <laughs> any way you want to look at it. But, uh, but you pretty much had to convince Silicon Valley at the time that the cable industry was on the right track with this. I mean, there were a lot of things that had to be developed, a lot of things that had to fall into place in order to make this happen. The perception of the cable industry about that time was that our technology was obsolete, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, Intel was running dog and pony shows showing that some form of wireless, uh, compressed wireless video distribution was gonna take over the functionality mm -hmm. and that we were, as, a, as an industry, we were gonna be uh, totally obsolete. Mm -hmm. Now the worm turned really uh, when uh, uh, in a discussion with Bill Gates, because we had kind of developed the specs of what we thought a digital set top mm -hmm. should look like. Um, and this is mid nineties, right? Stuff. Right. Uh, early, early. And Bill, you know, so I ran this by Bill and Bill said, John, uh, you know, uh, I'm absolutely certain that, that we could build such a device and deliver it at or below a $300 target price, which I had established as, as sort of affordable mm -hmm. for the industry as an investment in a, in a device. And uh, some of our skeptics in the industry were saying, it's five years out and, and it'll be a thousand bucks, right? Mm -hmm. That's true. I'm not going to name names, but there were, <laughs> there were skeptics, let's call it that. But Bill said, no, I, you know, he's, I said, uh, would you be willing to say that to mm -hmm. a group of cable industry CEOs, right? Yeah, hell yes, come on up. So Dick arranged an executive committee of Cable Labs trip. Mm -hmm. And in those days, Cable Labs executive he was the CEOs of the principal companies, mm -hmm. right? It was. So we go up uh, to visit Bill and and had a great meeting and Bill puts the specs up and says, Microsoft will guarantee, guarantee a device, you know, with these specs at or below 300 bucks. When, how many do you want? When do you want them? <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a deal. <laughs> And so uh, then we go, we break and go to dinner. Mm -hmm. right? So at dinner, uh, Brian Roberts is, uh, is at our table with Bill and, and Brian says, hey, Bill, you know, this is all great stuff, but the industry is really depressed right now. 
the market you know, is down. Why don't you buy 20% of each one of the public cable companies? You'll make a lot of money. We'll make a lot of money. And we'll get on with, with this upgrade of our technology, right? And we all laughed. Well, it wasn't about three weeks later that, <laughs> that they announced that Microsoft's buying a big preferred stock uh, issue in Comcast. Billion. Billion. billion well, puts a billion point? dollars into Comcast, which really, Comcast was still a pretty small company yeah, then. Right. So it really put, uh, put them on the map. But much more than that, mm -hmm. uh, that endorsement from Microsoft that our technology was on the right path mm -hmm. and that we were anything but obsolete, it just turned the whole industry around. Now, TCI in particular needed that technology because we were channel constrained. Mm -hmm. And so we got after it and we actually launched the, uh, pretty much every system we had, we went into, into deployment of that digital set-top as, as a channel expander, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to get, get it. Now, it turned out that Microsoft uh, was not ultimately uh, the vendor of choice. I guess Bill recognizing how important this was, um, <laughs> he decided to get a little extractive. <laughs> and, uh, but we were in a discussion that I had with Ed Green, who was then running uh, General Instruments. I said, hey, Ed, you know, uh, 300 bucks is the price. How many do I have to order to get you to deliver to the industry at uh, 300 bucks? And he said, I'll go study it. And he came back, you know, not terribly long after that. And he said, I think if you ordered 10 million of these things at 300 bucks, i.e. a $3 billion purchase order, we, we, could, uh, we could make them, we could... Uh, we could get this ball rolling. And so I said, well, this is really going to put GI on the map. We were already a shareholder of GI, by the way. And I said, why don't you think about, uh, in order to help me get the industry to write that big a purchase order, throw some GI warrants, warrants to purchase stock of GI on the table as part of this, because it'll be self-fulfilling. You know, this purchase order will put you guys on the map, your stock will take off, the warrants will be valuable, people will find it easy to write the purchase order. Well, that's what we did. And in the end, uh, uh, the warrants were worth more than the $3 billion purchase order. <laughs> so it was like a freebie out of the market. And, uh, you know, Eddie would tell you that that really did, did put GI on the map. Uh, we ended up actually owning GI, but that's a different story. <laughs> Let me go to Dick, you know, uh, with some of this. And so what were you doing at Cable Labs during this same time period? What was the role of Cable Labs in the development uh, of this? Well, I think as John, John mentioned, um, early 90s, we began looking at um, how, how to do the conversion. We could see analog was running out of steam, uh, run out of capacity. So we started looking at digital uh, technology as a way of um, expanding expanding the capability of the cable system. And as a technical person, you stand back and you look and you say, my God, they've got this big pipe and it runs by 95% of the people, uh, households in the country. What else can we do with it? Um, 
So digital, of course, was uh, very important. I think as John mentioned earlier, there was a sequence here, uh, fiber, mm -hmm. which helped solve the problem. Once fiber got solved, which cable labs came on the scene just as that was coming about. And we, we sort of held meetings and got the industry to do it a common way because they were industries all off doing it different ways. So we got, we got fiber going. And then the next step was digital, how to do digital. And then beyond that, telecom services. And then ultimately looking at you know, software, integration of networks and all those kind of things, which is kind of today. That, that was the sequence. So going to digital, um, as, as John mentioned, it was a really important step. And um, John, in a lot of ways, led that at TCI. Uh, what, what we did at Cable Labs to figure out how to make it work. And um, we developed a spec. Oh, and we did in the first spec, by the way, was for satellite transmission, mm -hmm. just as John That's mentioned, right. because uh, the capacity for satellite distribution was really limited. And if you had a limited number of transponders or, or transponder power, you really needed video compression. So we got yeah. into video compression you know, very strongly. And the leverage there was enormous because you, know, you got one transmitter, yeah. right? And one transmitter in the sky, it does the whole thing. So we use satellite technology an awful lot as part, you know, part of this transition. So uh, we developed that spec. Uh, we also developed a spec for the set-top box. TCI um, purchased against that. Uh, we had the 500-channel um, conference right. at the Western Show because we could see using this compression, we got at least 10 to 1. Mm -hmm. Uh, versus the analog channel was at least 10. Uh, some people were showing John 20. I, I was a little skeptical about yeah. that, but you know, you, now we know how to do that. Um, so uh, that plus the purchase, the, the $10 million or the a 10 million unit order uh, really galvanized the industry. And, and I think John... Um, made deals with the other operators saying, you know, uh, let's go together and make this purchase. It wasn't, it was a standardized box. We had an awful lot of discussion about different kinds of compression. There was a lot of fighting about The biggest that. problem was the software. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, initially we didn't really have software skills mm -hmm. to actually make this box, this uh, device <laughs> work. Right. And it was going to be a joint venture between the, uh, Microsoft and Sun Microsystems, and then we discovered to our dismay that those guys don't get along. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were suing each other, and we couldn't put them in the same room. <laughs> no, and the, the miracle of it was that GI actually was able to develop a software stack that worked, mm -hmm. while those guys were off suing each other and 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 blowing an opportunity for them to dominate that space, right? Well, GI uh, was quite a leader in the digital compression. And uh, one of the kind of unsung uh, accomplishments of the cable industry here was, as John, John mentioned, the FCC conducted this big runoff of different kinds of systems for high definition. This is all a high definition. And there were 18 proponents, and they were all analog one way or another. And um, TCI basically said, no, 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 let's, since we have the opportunity, 
let's go all digital. And GI came up with a working compression system, Mm -hmm. all digital. And they came in at the 11th hour because I was on one of the FCC committees Mm -hmm. helping make the decision. FCC had a big blue ribbon committee and they had a lot of important people on it. And they had us, us guys looking at the technology. And the net of all of that was high definition. The, the whole system was based on developments on a GI. So we were able to take advantage of that work and use that same kind of compression technology for standard definition was different. So um, GI really contributed uh, the work that they had been doing for cable, you know, for TCI right. on digital compression. Then, of course, we got in an argument of whether we should use the GI proprietary compression system or whether we should use it as a standard. And John was able to convince him to do both in the chip. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how we made the transition to the standard MPEG. Uh, and then what, once we had digital technology working, we came to the whole problems of transmission on the cable system, which is another story. It seems to me that you know, part of the role of Cable Labs was to figure out how to really make this stuff work Part of your job was how to pay for it, you know, for lack of a better word. This is very expensive stuff. You're talking about it. When you project out, you know, uh, I don't I don't think people really understand how much of an investment the cable industry had to make in order to give us what we have, you know, today, 20 years later. Well, my wife says redundancy is my charm. <laughs> and I've been talking about scale, 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 scale since I joined the cable industry in 1972. Mm-hmm. Right. It's all about scale yeah. to get manufacturers to do the R&D. Mm-hmm. They got to see the opportunity for scale. And, uh, you know, that's been just consistent message all the way through. And you don't get scale if you have balkanization or different standards. Probably the biggest scary point for me was when it looked like we had a sole source right yeah, in the yes. boxes box yes yes I and do uh and i thought for sure broadcom was going to own the industry right mm-hmm. yeah and those we, guys we, we, peter nicholas yes they yeah. were they were tough guys Got and some dick, calls from and and dick stared them down <laughs> right you really uh, it was a really, fight he busted fight. it and and that was a very important so you know all the way along there have been pitfalls mm-hmm. And a very important role of Cable Labs has been developing vendors as competitors. Mm-hmm. You know, if you won't do it, this guy will. And getting the industry the benefit of scale mm-hmm. that and, and breaking out of this proprietary trap. You know, in, encryption was another area. Yeah, that's right. Uh, as we went mm-hmm. digital, where encryption became another pothole, mm-hmm. right? And the, are you going to end up with proprietary standards in encryption? So, you know, that this cable lab organization, by at least purporting mm-hmm. to speak for the entire industry, increasingly on a global basis, right, brought scale the promise of large purchase orders and therefore the investment by vendors in R&D and development and and the being willing to bid against increasingly standardized specs. I think that, that think kind of, uh, of it, right? uh, trend. I think, you know, Cable Labs could speak for the industry because we had all the CEOs 
on our board, on, on our executive committee. And what we did, and just a thumbnail description here, is we developed a process. The process was we would go to our industry and make a list of requirements. Mm-hmm. What do you want? That's how the modem started. It's actually a digital box. It's the right. same way. Sure. Made a list. And then we would develop a spec around that, trying to make that work. Then still inside the industry, we'd go back to the technical people. And I think you saw that in that previous interview. We had very good technical people from the member companies, from the MSOs. They'd read it over. They'd come back and say, no, 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 fix this, do that. When we got through with all of that, we had an industry-wide agreement on the technical side about what it was going to be. Then we would take that and put it out to a select group in the industry of industry people. We would ask industry, do you want to participate in this? Mm-hmm. And the modem, we had like 500 companies because we're beginning to see the scale. Wow, yeah. and it's going to be a lot yeah. of units. So we then out, went out to them privately and said, what do you think of this? And of course, they came back and said, if you do this change, we can make it cheaper and mm-hmm. so on. Following an agreement there, then we would take it to a standards organization and have the debate. But by that time, you had companies that were looking at the spec and saying, and had prototypes built mm-hmm. before the standards, actually. Mm-hmm. And then we developed what we called an incubator. We would have the manufacturers come into the lab with the hardware that they had built uh, against the spec. And we tried out in the laboratory. And as John mentioned, the really critical thing was interoperability. We'd plug these things together and they wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, what's going on here? And with a lot of very capable people, who some of whom you met, they would figure out what was wrong, work with the manufacturers, we'd fix it. Now, eventually, we got to the end of this and we needed a chip <laughs> to go in the modem. And we worked really closely with any manufacturer that was willing to work with us. Intel worked with us for a while, but Broadcom really put a lot of effort in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Broadcom kind of wanted a proprietary solution, and yeah. they offered some deals which I just had to turn down. Yeah. We can't do that because we wanted multiple vendors on the chip and the hardware. Mm-hmm. Now, the end of all of this is, just to get to the end of it, after, after the incubator, then came the commercial units. And before a commercial unit could go into the industry, we certified it. And then what we did is we take it in the lab and, and the cable labs would test it against the spec. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was a difficult test. We, the last thing we wanted was to put out a lot of standardized modems and have them not work. Right. So we spent a lot of time making sure they did work. We even established certification boards, which were actually representative of the cable labs board. They didn't work for the cable lab staff. They worked for the board. Mm-hmm. And the net of that was they could speak for the board and they would privately look at all the tests that we did and say, this is certified or it's not. Mm-hmm. And once it was certified, then the cable companies knew that it would work. Mm-hmm. And they could buy it from that manufacturer. At one time, we started out with certifying one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, there was a head end to go with this too, which I won't tell you about right now. Mm-hmm. But that was a, another complex standard setting effort. Um, we started up with one manufacturer. But within a year, we had 100 manufacturers making modems. We had really the power of scale. We had the power of commoditizing that modem. And the real risk was we would have only one chip, 
Mm-hmm. And but we had multiple manu. We finally got multiple manufacturers making multiple chips, mm-hmm. and the vendors all used them, and it all worked together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the general. Process. So then along comes Al Gore's invention of the. <laughs> And, you know, he was actually, I, I, first of all, Al is a very smart guy. He's, he's been, you know, ridiculed. But he had a lot to do with the creation. So we're sitting here in the communications business. And, you know, our facilities are starting to be used for that kind of connectivity, right? And it's, if you remember, originally it's a telephone type of connection. And... This is in the mid-90s, and we're sitting there saying, you know, our technology is going to take us to much higher speeds, much greater capabilities than people are thinking about. And why don't we get the industry together in an organization and go for it? You know, try and become, beat the phone companies, as it were, in this emerging new telecommunications telecommunication service, which is going to require a lot more bandwidth to do a really good job. And and we've got it, right? Well, and give people an idea of, of the speed. I mean, we're, we're talking about a very significant leap between a, you oh. know, a 2400 baud modem and what the cable industry. So we're sitting there and, and saying mm-hmm. and starting to demonstrate in labs the difference to mm-hmm. the consumer. And we're saying, you know, would, it, would somebody pay more? Would they, you know, can we, can we be the first guys who can deliver, you know, to an impatient customer, you know, uh, great functionality. And uh, so we come up with the idea of creating at home, Mm -hmm. which uh, was intended to be an organization that would oversee the coordination and partnership, really, of the North American cable industry mm-hmm. in in organizing themselves to transport and offer this high-speed connectivity service. And we basically, I think we had everybody, any Everybody's material been. operator in North America join in, except for Time Warner, Time Warner Cable. And they wanted to, uh, but they had a contractual arrangement with U.S. West that predated all of this. And they were, they, that, that agreement uh, gave the authority for uh, Time Warner to participate in something like this to U.S. West, which they declined to put uh, Time Warner cable mm-hmm. into. Mm-hmm. And this was a Jerry Levin period right. kind of thing. We even want, went to uh, Time Warner and we said, look, uh, Jerry, uh, you're sort of the father of HBO. Wouldn't it be great to be the father of high speed, the kind of services that can only be delivered in high speed? And we even offered to allocate a certain amount of the revenue stream uh, so that the time guys could direct <laughs> uh, and sponsor uh, the creation of content that would be so much better, right? You know, at high speed and high depth than uh, than what was otherwise available. We couldn't pry pry them out of what was then Media One, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah Chuck Lillis and Media One. So, but 
other than them, everybody in North America was on board, and we were headed toward a, you know, a North American unified service offering. And I'd have to say that that the, the fact that TCI was in control of that effort was really the reason AT&T came mm -hmm. and initially wanted to partner with the industry. And when uh, they got kind of rejected on partnering with the industry, uh, they decided to try and buy TCI. And, and that was largely, I always call it the scent gland of TCI <laughs> was basically <laughs> this large stake and control of at home. Right? So, of course, history would have been a lot different if AT&T had known what they were doing and had taken that position as a friendly and supportive partner rather than uh, trying to dominate it and driving everybody else out. But, uh, but that was really the, at that point, that was the epitome of, of what we saw as that connectivity technology and the opportunity that it represented. Let me take, spend a little bit of time before we run out of time altogether to talk about Doxis. Uh, this is the 20th anniversary of Doxis uh, this year, 1.0. Obviously, we're all talking about Doxis 3.1 at this point. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about first of all, what is Doxis, and um, you know, how does it work with a cable modem? Let's say, and um, what was Cable Labs' role in developing both the cable modem and then into Doxis? Okay, well, um, to cut key off of what John was saying, uh, the Cable Lab's role was on the technology side. We right. could develop the spec and we could put that forward and, and get a manufacturing base, uh, which we talked a little bit about. Um, another really important uh, concept there that was outside the range of cable labs was uh, cable operators really didn't know how to manage data at the time. It was a new service and it was IP and it required a different group of people. And uh, basically what happened is at home came along and provided that expertise. It was kind of a turnkey service for cable operators. So that was an extraordinarily important element. If we hadn't had that, we would never have uh, prevailed here. And the third thing was investment, which you've already mentioned. In, in order to make these systems work two-way required a lot of investment. I don't know the extent of it, but it's in the $100 billion class. It's in the $50 to $100 billion class it took to upgrade the systems to be able to do two-way and make this, this all work. So it's three things. Now, going back to the cable labs uh, part of it, what was DOCSIS? Um, the development of the modem was uh, interesting because uh, the industry, the, the manufacturing industry saw that we as an industry were interested in data. So there were several companies that developed hardware to sell to the cable industry to be able to do high-speed data. We had efforts going on at Cable Lab, so we kind of understood this, but the real progress came out of industry. And there were three major modems that I remember. I don't want to forget the names right here, but there was a Land City modem, um, there was a Zenith modem, and there was another one which was kind of Motorola GI hybrid. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they had developed modems and they were in trials with the cable industry. 
And then at one of our board meetings, and when these are the minutes of that board meeting, I made a presentation. Here's what's happening. Here are the three modems and, you know, various things. And, and we had tested them at Cable Labs, and we knew the strengths and weaknesses. And there were weaknesses in all of them. So we didn't really like all of them, but they were, you know, they were almost, they were on the prototype, but they were early modems. Um, so at this meeting, the, uh, and John's statement is in there, he basically said, okay, Cable Labs, you go work with industry, the guys that have been developing this, you work with the MSOs, and you come up with a common way of doing this. Because we want to have interoperability among, um, among these systems. We really don't want to have these orphaned systems. So we took that as a mandate. That mandate became DOCSIS. Uh, we hired people um, like uh, Bob Cruikshank, who you met, Tom Moore. They, they came into Cable Labs as students, uh, as interns during the summer. And these guys are geniuses. And they took over, really you know, made all this happen. Um, out of that, what we developed, uh, working with industry and so on, there was another... MCNS was an organization of operators, of the four main operators. They did a lot of, of uh, development of the standard. We took it inside. We put out RFPs. I, we went through this process I just outlined. So we got a lot of feedback from industry. Uh, and the net of that was there's some really important things in DOCSIS. One is error correction. Right. That's highly proprietary. Uh, GI Motorola contributed to that. Uh, to us uh, on a royalty-free basis. Um, and then the uh, actual uh, Mac layer, which you, uh, Tom Moore developed uh, together with industry, it's a, it was a, it's groundbreaking. It, the telephone companies were all doing transmission by allowing slots. You get a time slot. Well, that doesn't scale. You get 300 modems out there, 1,000 modems. It doesn't work. Because, and we had to demonstrate in the lab. We had to get 300 modems and hook them up and show everybody it doesn't work. Um, and then there were modulation problems. Uh, land City was very high data rate. You, you wanted to know the data rates. Land City early one was a megabit, which was huge. Because a megabit and a half was a T1 line, which cost you, I don't know, a telephone company for selling that. At that was $1,000. $1,000 a month or something. So we thought, hey, why well, we can do that. But the problem with the land city, when it was a little bit fragile, didn't always do, especially on some of the systems that were not tight. Mm -hmm. So we had that Zenith was an early one. It only worked at some low, lower data rate. And, and that was its problem. It just didn't have a higher data rate. And the GI uh, one had this polling problem. So we said, you know, mm -hmm. let's take all this, put it together and figure out. So we worked out, we worked with the industry, we worked with the MSOs, came up with a DOCSIS spec, and then we standardized it. I took it to the ITU because we needed a good standards body. And that was, that's the granddaddy. Yeah. We took it there and standardized it worldwide. So basically, you have a modem standard that's universal throughout the world. First time that ever happened in the cable industry. And huge scale, huge buying capability, and a really good service, it, it turns out. But if we hadn't had at home and we hadn't had the investment, we would have had a great white coat laboratory device. Uh, so it took an industry commitment, not, not just cable labs. I'm very proud of the work that happened at cable labs. I think we had you know, some really excellent people. They did an excellent job. 
uh, well, it's something things, to be pr- very proud I, of as an industry. I yeah, think. I think, you know, as, as an industry, it really is building on the work of others. I, that's why I think for a lot of things that we look at, you know, who really is the inventor? Well, it was a whole bunch of people and a whole oh. lot of things contributed to it in order to get us uh, to this point. And, and that continues in the cable industry today. It's so hundreds. Hundreds. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, the challenge to the cable industry today is we're dealing, because the internet became global standard, okay, and you have companies manufacturing for and distributing software and hardware based upon a global footprint, not a domestic or or subset of a domestic. So, you know, this need for scale and this need to think about scale is just still critical in this industry. And, uh, you know, or we basically have to adopt and adapt to the technology of the internet, you know, driven by larger scale than we can provide. <laughs> right. So, you know, if you're talking about uh, Wi-Fi, for instance, and you want to be able to roam uh, on Wi-Fi, which the cable industry is terrific at being able to implement, you have to have devices, i.e. smartphones, mm-hmm. that uh, that automatically know what system they're on and where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you could implement a very interesting sort of uh, wireless uh, service that wouldn't be so spectrum intensive mm-hmm. and could be much more affordable. And you could take the service quality and speeds up another notch, right? No, I mean, that's that's kind of the challenge that the industry faces today. And you know, it's I I, I marvel at the fact that young entrepreneurs now uh, who are offering their concepts to global footprints. You know, where you're looking at two billion households, maybe. You know, when Mark Zuckerberg says, "I had." One billion simultaneous users today, <laughs> right? It just blows your mind. Yeah. Okay, and uh, you know, and that's the world in which the U.S. or the cable industry, broadly defined, is a player, but a somewhat small player against that scale. And so you have to understand, you know, what you can do and innovate, and what you can differentiate with, but also what you better go along, you know, with the pack because you'll never you'll never fight uh, uh, the scale that, that those businesses have already established. What's yeah, I think the well, just to comment on that, I I think um, it's like always in the cable. There's another exciting opportunity here. Uh, it's technically based, but it has all of the other elements, investment and so on, that needs to be uh, added to it. If you, if you think about it, the cable industry has uh, an outlet in a lot of homes, a, a high-speed data outlet and Wi-Fi. Because I, I don't know, 50% of the, of the Internet is now transmitted by Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. So it's going into the house to devices. I've got one in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're the carrier. We're, we're the carrier in the home. Um, wouldn't it be nice if we could make um, the extension of our network so that that Wi-Fi 
element uh, was available across the country, across the globe, uh, in a standardized way. In other words, you know, this is an ideal vision, but just take the DOCSIS kind of concept and you add Wi-Fi to it. And it goes in every home. And as, as John mentions, the tools now, you can take the tools from the Internet. Cloud. Well, that's a great tool. You can virtualize the hardware. You can make software. And for all the world, it looks like the hardware. But you can put it in the cloud. So, you, you, you know, you basically have the cloud. The other big thing we have is small cells. Um, the future of wireless of any kind, uh, 4G or 5G, that's all small cells. And we, we know how to do that. We got all these small cells in houses. We can put them outside on the strand. I saw an, an item Cox is talking about selling small cell service to telephone carriers mm -hmm. because you've got a fiber and you've got the wireless out there. So you, the combination of IP, as John mentions, huge scale, lots of hardware, all built to a standard, that it's a tool for us. We can use that, cloud, small cells. Um, all of those internet tools, I think, fall to us if, if we can figure out how to make this all work together. And as John says, you want to be able to, and this is always really irritating to me, take a phone and it won't work on the wireless network. I can see the wireless network, but I can't get on it. I want that to be automatic. Mm -hmm. The phone talk, and it talks, it goes to the cloud, identifies me, authenticates me, and I can you know, move around to any Wi-Fi connection that's connected to cable and, and that works. So Unfortunately, I think that's the future. You're, we're out of time. Yeah, yeah, we're going to have to do Sorry. a wrap-up. And so let me just you know, <laughs> ask you one final uh, question with this. Obviously, we've seen an awful lot of change in the last 20 years. Both of you guys were at the vanguard mm -hmm. you know, of, uh, of those changes, and it's changed society. It's, it's basically changed the world. What do you think, uh, you know, as short as you can you know, with these <laughs> sorts of things, um, what does the next 20 years hold in store for both this industry and for the consumer? Just a thought, sir. No, I mean, it, it's, it continues. I mean, we're mm -hmm. only partway down this road, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of communication, convenience, efficiency, cost-effectiveness. Uh, you know, the, the, the theme way back was everything... Anywhere, at any time, <laughs> high quality and yeah. at reasonable cost, and, and and I think we're still on that same thing. Uh, so whether it, it's the information, entertainment, whatever, random access. I mean, we've seen the public's love of random access, right? Uh, making that a practical reality on a global basis at an affordable cost. Mm -hmm. I think that's the challenge now. No, I, of course, I t totally agree with that. I, I think the next big step for the industry, and I agree, it, we're only about halfway down, mm -hmm. <laughs> of what we can do mm -hmm. and, and what people would really like us to do. Uh, I, I, I can see that, that goal. I think the, the next big step is integration of networks. You really have to have a wireless seamless, integrated network with the terrestrial networks. And I think there's going to be a collision about that because I think cable industry is moving from the home out and the telephone companies are moving from big cells in. Yeah. And, um, and it's going to be a convergence. It's, it's, it's be convergence. A, there'll be a 
technological convergence, there'll also be uh, uh, economic convergence, right? And uh, we see it really progressing much faster outside the U.S. than in the mm -hmm. U.S. right now because of the dominance of the two principal wireless carriers. But even there, there'll be an erosion of those boundaries, and uh, and you'll start to see the, the the economics and the technology will just drive those networks together. Well, I think it's a good place good. to end it. Sounds Dick good. Green, John Malone, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank Larry. you, Larry. Thank you. You've just heard the story of Doxus interview with Dr. Dick Green and John Malone. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for the Cable Center, the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacy of the cable industry's innovations and influence. Thank you for listening.